Well, 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 welcome to the mayhem Dick and Lloyd mayhem Media mayhem Marketing mayhem You might love it, you might hate it Here's my favorite freaking show Kurt Van Keppel and his friends wanted a better cigar cutter, but they wound up disrupting the entire industry with their Zycar brand. Come on along with us to a special place just off the plaza, and let's find out more. You know, Lloyd, once again, you've led me to another place in the city I did not know existed. Dick, I don't think there's any place else like this. I'll I don't believe you. there is either, no. We're with Kurt Van Keppel in, in a secret, kind of secret, Cigar Club just east of the Country Club Plaza, and it is beautiful here. Love your club. Thank you, Loy. I appreciate that. It's a, it's a good uh, getaway. It is indeed. It we sure got, is, yeah. yeah we got sure cigars is. going. I'm still trying to teach Dick how to... I'm doing it, yeah. I, I think it's still lit. I'm working it. So. Well, you cut that cigar very well. Why is that, Dick? Because Kurt did it for me. Kurt the Pro Cutter. <laughs> one of the pro cutters in the nation did this for me. So. He is one of the pro mm -hmm. cutters because he is the man who started Zycar, which is a really probably the best known brand name right now in cutters and one of the biggest names in lighters and other cigar accoutrement. Tell us about that, uh, Kurt. How did that all get started? Well, sure, I'm delighted to. In, in fact, I, I called a retailer just the other day, and he picked up the phone and said, Mr. Zycar. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, that name. Oh, well, yeah, What's sure. What's the story there? Uh, first of all, thank you guys for uh, your interest in chatting with me sure. and, and, and about Absolutely. Zycar. I appreciate that. It's, it's a well, we love talking to entrepreneurs with interesting stories and, and people who have really confronted the market head-on because who knows marketing better than somebody who's who's gone without a net and met the market and been successful and I mean when you're an entrepreneur and you bootstrap something like this you are really the guy going through the jungle with the machete and and you're the guy who learns a lot so it's always fun talking to you guys. That's with really these great kind. Stories. That's really kind, Aloy. And and I would add, it's not too generous. It's just the truth. When when <laughs> when, when when you really do have to uh, eat only what you can hunt, mm -hmm. uh, you, you learn it along the way. And and it's a, it's an MBA without uh, having to go take the classes. In, in fact, it's it's, yeah. it's the true. And life. we'll get into that a little bit later because I know you've helped a lot of entrepreneurs kicking off their careers here in the city. You have sure hope have. To, ha yeah. have done yeah. and hope to do a lot more of that. Let's look back at the uh, Zycar though. Tell me how this got started. Why did you do this? Well, sure. I I was um, starting to get interested in cigar with, in fact, the group of buddies who uh, started this cigar club. Mm -hmm. This is back in the mid '90s during the big cigar boom and went to Diebel's Sportsman's Gallery here on the plaza to buy a cigar cutter and thought, $55, three pieces of plastic, two pieces of metal, gosh, that, that feels expensive. <laughs> you know, I, I can do better than that. And at the time I was working for a faultless starch company uh, here in town in sales and marketing. And um, so I knew a little bit about um, production costs and what it takes to get to market and how to sell. And, um, you know, I, I just thought, well, why don't I try? And I, and I called my, my buddy, Scott Almsberger, who I had known at University of Kansas. And Another fellow with a little bit of a fairway uh, pedigree there, by the well, way. Yeah, his that's true. I grew up next to his, uh, a block away from his grandparents. What? No kidding. Yeah, Joe Almsberger. Yeah. Yeah, that's in, well. And did you know that his father Denny uh, was a butcher at um, yeah at Mission, at Highland, Mission Highland Supermarket. Supermarket. I knew oh, him as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 What was uh, what was Scott's background? What did you go to him for? Well, the, exactly the right question, mm -hmm. Dick. He he uh, was a, an industrial designer uh, by degree at KU, and then um, went to work for a couple different places in industrial design. In fact. Uh, part of his career, he was designing motorcycle and jet ski seats for a company up in Omaha, a Japanese company there, and really learned some great design methodologies uh, and the innovation thinking. 
mm -hmm. uh, as it is now called. It wasn't called that then. It was just called industrial design. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, and so I said to Scott, hey, I, I want to invent a cigar cutter that would be like a pair of scissors without the handles. Mm -hmm. uh, so it would have a pivot point, and then the blades would, from that pivot point, have greater leverage. So I knew it had to be spring-loaded, and you're going to hear me open it now. I knew it had to be spring-loaded. Mm -hmm. That's what that sounds like. Yeah. And, and then because it was spring-loaded, open, I knew it had to be locked closed. So I gave those parameters to Scott and said, can you uh, help me do something with that? And I later learned that that is exactly the type of right relationship between client and designer. Okay. So the designer of the product shouldn't have to decide how the product is going to function or satisfy the consumer's need, mm -hmm. he needs to design to what the marketer or the entrepreneur determines from the consumer what their need is. Okay. And in fact, my need was a cigar cutter that uh, was not as awkward as a three-piece cigar cutter. Awkward to pick up, awkward to put on your fingers, awkward to, uh, at the very tip of your fingers, to cut a cigar. Mm -hmm. I wanted something that I could just put in the palm of my hand, squeeze my hand together, and the clippings remained in my palm instead of falling all over my lap. Okay, yeah, sure. And then all of that one-handed. Now, what neither of us knew we were inventing was this sound and that switchblade action. Okay, uh-huh. And I can tell you at the very first trade show, I stood at my table and did that all day long. And that's what got people to stop and turn Whoa, what, and say, what's that noise? What the hell are you doing? <laughs> so. So that is so much cooler than the uh, distinctive DuPont ping. <laughs> the DuPont ping is pretty famous. Too. <laughs> I'm not sure if cooler, maybe cooler, yes. More famous, I, I'm not sure. Now, that's, that's the noise a DuPont lighter makes. Uh, I should say at the outset that um, I do work with entrepreneurs and today in my endeavor is to help them build, help entrepreneurs build their businesses. And in this town is such an impressive town for entrepreneurs to be, to start. There's so much help. And um, I've heard a huge number of fantastic stories uh, with great vision. And I want to say humbly that we had none of that. We started really? with, sure. we, yeah, we, we started with an invention and we didn't even intend to start a company. In fact, I tried to sell the concept to a couple distributors in the trade mm -hmm. and uh, couldn't get any takers. So, because they had no vision, even when they saw the well, product of well, where it could go and what what the need was, the, what, what the consumer perhaps yes. In in hindsight, that's exactly the way to look at it, and and that's a proper marketing analysis of what the situation was. Just the truth of it, and this is entrepreneurial truth. They looked at a cigar cutter. They looked at the competitor, which was. Uh, in fact, at Diebel's shop that year, one of the highest unit-selling items in the whole store and under the Davidoff brand, mm -hmm. a huge brand in the cigar place, mm -hmm. and, and they said, there's no room for you in this. And by the way, cigar cutters, who cares? <laughs> so um, one company asked me, you know, how much do you want for it? And I said, well, I don't know, 10% of revenue or maybe 100,000 bucks, and you get the whole thing, including the patent, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they said, nah, no thanks, it, it'll never amount to much. And I can tell you that just a couple of years ago, we, we launched a new item that whose one new cigar cutter item, whose uh, sales were well into the six figures. Wow. I'm sorry, seven figures. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Seven figures. So wow. I, I'm glad they turned us down. Well, now yeah. I remember seeing your product come around because I had a, a, a Harry's Bar and Tables. We were a big cigar seller. We, That's right. I, I was in there and loved it. Yeah, and that was one of the first, if not the first in the Midwest, that was uh, around scotch and cigars. And, you know, because the, the pushback then was really intense on that. Well, women will never go into a place where there are cigar. You know, we, we could go on to that, uh -huh. down that road forever about the kind of pushback that I faced. Just opening a cigar bar, Absolutely, I'm sure. But also had a shop next door. Now it's now under different ownership, it's called Fidel's, but when the Zycar cutter came in, to me it was immediately, I was very impressed and very curious about this and wanted to sell these things. Well, I'm delighted. And I still remember <laughs> the first time I saw one. I remember where I was in the store because to me it made a big impact. I immediately was fascinated with this thing. 
So the things that it does, first of all, Almsberger, what a designer. In fact, this original cutter is the only product amongst all the ones that we did, and we had 550 different items uh, eventually. This is the only one that never changed from final drawing to uh, final production piece. Okay. Every other product we made, we tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. And this, this one was so good at its final conception, concept drawing that we never ever had to change it. And, and in fact, eventually, we were awarded a trademark status on the shape, a trade dress yes. trademark, which protects right. the shape in perpetuity. And, and in order to achieve that with the Patent Trademark Office, we had to prove that the design itself was iconic, that people in the trade could see the design and tell um, the interviewer or tell the survey what brand that that product came from. Sure. So okay. it was a very proud yeah. moment for us. Well, well it's certainly distinctive and it has a, it has, you can see it on the YouTube version of this podcast. I'm going to put a photo of it, but if you haven't seen a Zycar, the classic cutter, it has like a dual scythe action that uh, one of the problems with cigar cutters was always when you were trying to squeeze it, it was almost like a scissor action where, you know, how scissors will push things toward the yeah, end. Yeah. And this really kind of, it, it kind of pulls it in and clips it yeah. at the same time. And, and that's what's... It's, it, it's true. Uh, the concept of having uh, a cutter based on a pivot point, which creates more leverage, gives a much more mm -hmm. powerful cut. And so um, from the outset achieved what eventually we deemed as one of the four F's of all of, that all of our product had to have, and that's great function, first mm -hmm. and foremost, as good as or better than any competitor. Then great form, it had to be uh, good looking or artful to the eye, great feel in the hand or ergonomic, all sold at a fair price. So those were our four F's of product, and that was one of the two pillars that we say held up the brand. The, the other pillar is our service strategy, and in, in a moment I'm sure I'll spend some time telling you about that. But first, I want to tell you thank you for your impressions and, and for buying the product both at Harry's and, and, uh, and it was also John over, Bull at that yeah, time. Yeah, 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 and John Bull. And, and that wasn't the impression of everybody. In fact, before we really began selling at the trade show and to the trade formally, I got kicked out of my first sales call. I was on a family vacation to Los Angeles and made an appointment by phone and walked into a store, it's no longer there, Century City Cigars, uh, at 1.30, the appointed time, and said, you know, it was, was kind of crowded in there, mm -hmm. and uh, said, hey, I'm here to, to show my cutter, I'm here for this appointment, and had my cutter in my hand, and, and the owner looked at me and he said, what the hell are you doing in here at lunchtime? <laughs> and, and I said, well, I, I had this appointed time. And, and, and he said, well, you know, I, I don't care what time you think your appointment was, you don't come into a store at lunchtime, and, and I don't like the looks of that. And, you know, thank goodness I had had experience in sales and had had some rough sales calls in sure, my time. Yeah. And, and so I said something that I repeated again and again. Whenever there was a, a difficult moment, or even if just a store didn't want uh, or couldn't buy the product at the time, I said, well, that's okay. Uh, you know, I'll be ready for you whenever you're ready. And and I just hung around a little bit longer. And and he never became ready. And so eventually, mm -hmm. I had to take off. But whenever I went into a store there on after, a store said, you know what? No, no thanks. I always said, no problem. We'll be here when you're ready for us. Which turns out gave them uh, or imparted to them a level of confidence that we had in our product. That when we came back around the second time. They said, hey, you're back. Well, yeah, we're back. We're selling it like crazy and thought you might like to be sure, part of the party. Yeah. So, What do you wow. think? What, what, what was the defensive buildup that you were seeing for people when you came in and presented a new cutter? Mm. Where did that come from, you think? Well, you know, in, at, at that time, it, it, can, it comes from a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Retailers in general are inundated with salespeople walking in. And um, in, in the cigar trade is a very informal trade. It's a trade of camaraderie, and sometimes um, salespeople can mistake the camaraderie of the atmosphere of a store for how they might behave professionally when they walk in. And so retailers don't always have the benefit of getting an appointment request before somebody walks in their door. So th that was probably item number one. Mm -hmm. And item number two, uh, it was in the middle of the cigar boom. And, 
And I mean, the boom was so big that people were, were coming out with product right and left and so walking into stores intense. all the time. And, yeah. you, you know, it, it was almost a free-for-all. So New okay, labels, sure. Don yeah. Somebody. That, well, that's that's mm-hmm. what, isn't that what they call yeah. them? Don Nobody or Don Somebody? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don, yeah, exactly right. So after that period, you know, we Scott and I decided, okay, well, we just got to start selling it ourselves. And he had the design background with also some some years in sales and I had a sales and marketing and and one of my jobs was to manage brokers so you know we ordered production uh, we built our first 150 units in our garages from parts made at a machine shop here in, in, in Olathe mm-hmm. really? and yeah and if I read properly that didn't turn out well on the assembly to begin with is well, that right well that's funny yes um, we got 200 sets of parts okay and uh, so we, we were able to put together 155 of those and and the first 35 of which I sold to members of the cigar club mm-hmm. of the cigar club and I'll never forget the night of the delivery. It was a cigar club dinner we were having. Okay. And I had all these cutters and I handed them to uh, out to everybody and, and with the with the name of the club laser engraved, you know, etched on the back of the cutter. And um, you know, one of the members who owns a meat slicing equipment company raises voice in the midst of everybody and says, These things, these damn things are dull. They, they, they won't cut anything. And, and, and I looked and I looked here and there and I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, the blades are sharpened, but you got to hone them. And again, this is in front of all my buddies. And, and, and I said, well, what do you mean hone them? And he's like, oh, geez. It, it means you have to polish the blade edge to get the little burrs off. And that's what eventually makes the edge of a blade sharp. So my reply to that was, Guys, hand them all back. <laughs> so, back to the garage. So they handed them all back. I took them home to Scott, and um, we disassembled all of them. And then I took all those blades, which would have been, what is that, 155, 310 blades, to Ambrosi Brothers Cutlery uh, mm-hmm. up here at um, 31st and, and, and Main Street. Sure, yeah. And God bless Alfred Ambrosi, who owns the shop these days. His dad was the owner then. And he taught me exactly what this guy in, in, wow. in my club said. I'll okay, be darned. Okay, here's how you hone these blades. And, you know, <laughs> on this buffing wheel. And they were scary sharp. Wow. In fact, when I re-delivered them all, I said, guys, just one caution. Believe me when I tell you they're sharp. Don't test your finger on them because... Seriously, they were they were uh, scalpel sharp. All those guys still have those cutters. Just today. another example of Kansas Cityans helping Kansas City. That's right. Yeah, that's right. We do it by yelling uh, at each other. Yeah, yelling out loud and embarrassing each other. <laughs> yeah, right. But see, I mean, you've got to have guts to be an entrepreneur because, I mean, that some people just wouldn't have gotten off the floor after that one. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a tough maybe, way to learn. Maybe so. Tough um, way to learn. You know, I, I like to say I, I learned all my lessons the tough way, and most of which cost me cost me money. Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah. and and probably I wouldn't have learned a lesson had it not cost me money. So, the the next lesson I learned because um, I I don't know any better, but keep to keep going is um, we then after that successful sale of of those uh, all those units here that we handmade, we ordered production. Uh, we we found a producer. And we ordered production, and they told us that production would come in April. Now, this is 1997. So I quit my job at the time, and um, in, in order, in January, I quit my job in order to prep the marketplace. And, you know, I started sending out emails and letters. In fact, um, Kurt Diebel helped me uh, by providing me a couple of testimonials and et cetera. Well, the production came in April, 98, a year later. Oh. So by August, I'd run out of money and had to go back and get a job and some friends of mine got me a job at Xerox where one of them was working or wow. actually they were both working mm-hmm. and I worked for Xerox uh, I, I went into my interview and um, and I was up front with them I said you know I've got this little company I just want you to know that um, I'll, I'll give you guys 50 hours a week minimum and then um, the other hours I'm, I'm gonna be working in my garage on this and, and they said yeah 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 whatever you'll be here for life well nine months later the production did come in and the next month, because of the mail campaign that I was doing, um, I sold $10,000 worth by mail. And, and, and I offered the deal. I said, uh, a good friend of mine and, and former employer over uh, Tim Webster said to me, hey, your, your product is your best advertisement. Uh, why don't you just send uh, 
a sample of your product to each of these retailers. Mm -hmm. So I said, I can't do that. And he said, well, what, are you going to spend more money on advertising? In other words, really, what what does it really cost you? Yeah. So he's I said, a smart guy. Isn't yeah, he? yeah. <laughs> and, and and eventually he became a partner of yeah. uh, of ours as well. And and he's he's just so brilliant in finance and uh, operations that uh, we grew enough that we needed him. Mm -hmm. So uh, we begged him. So I sent a free sample at, to to these retailers uh, that Kurt Diebel had recommended uh, with Kurt's testimony and and said, hey, here's my offer. If you like the product. Uh, buy 12 and keep it. And if you don't like the pro product, I'm a starving entrepreneur, please send it back to me. I didn't lose one product. <laughs> In fact, eventually that uh, spring, they all bought from me. So then I went to the trade show uh, in, in which I was clicking the cutter all day long and came home with, uh, shared a split a table with a humidor manufacturer. So I had four feet, he had four feet of this table and I came home with $350,000 in orders Wow! and thought I was the richest guy ever. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> what a great story. Now that besides the industrial design aspect of this, there, there was some distinctive, a distinctive motif that I remember you came out with early. I guess that was Scott's too. And I'm, in fact, I'm looking at an ashtray right here from HC that, that uh, kind of reminds me of some of the those early products, those product lines that you had. Did, yeah. Was that was that Scott Omsberger again? Yeah, uh, actually, actually uh, no. Although Scott is a great designer, we we, we were happy to get design input, um, you know, wherever it might come. And in this case, the cut and torn bits of Cuban cigar mm -hmm. band and cigar box art was suggested to us by a um, by our. Uh, European sales and marketing manager, Ludo Faxel, who's French and uh, knew a guy in Paris who was making humidors with these cut and torn bits of uh, Cuban cigar art mm. placed and, and lacquered on top, lacquered underneath a, a shell of, of lacquer on humidors. Mm -hmm. And that technique of torn bits of paper is called decoupage. Mm -hmm. So it it's, means cut collage. And this artist uh, ha just had an eye to do this. Oh, it was wonderful. And, and, and the, um, the humidors named Ellie Bleu that he was selling were selling for 5000 apiece. And so Ludo convinced him to do a series of these, of our, of our cigar cutter with their handles covered in, these, mm -hmm. in this decoupage art of cut pieces of uh, Cuban art. And that's how that whole line began. It was a standout. I mean, Beautiful. without a doubt, because no one else was doing anything of that well level. It was such a standout, and the art was so good that when the artist in Paris retired and moved to Brazil, it turns out, we tried to replicate it, and and we um, we sent it to a variety of artists. No one could duplicate what this man had done wow. in terms of the art of making a collage have some sense mm -hmm, sure. and, and be beautiful. And so we retired the line. Now, that also happened to coincide with um, um, a moment at which we decided to register the name Havana Collection. And I don't know if you remember this, mm -hmm. Roy, but um, the government of Cuba, through uh, legal representation in New York, sued to oppose our registration of that trademark in the um, uh, Patent and Trademark Office. They won that suit. In other words, the, the Trademark Office said, no, you can't use the name Havana. Now, our defense was, uh, it, they said, you cannot use the name Havana to depict um, a cigar cutter because it, it confuses the consumers about the origin of the product. And uh, you know, our response was, well, nobody is confused about the origin of the product, and furthermore, uh, what is the difference between that and Tommy Bahama, as as a as an example? Mm -hmm. but, sure, but, yeah. But we lost that one. They prevailed they, somehow. They, they did. They did. I wonder how that happened. Yeah, I just, right. Seriously, I mean, <laughs> that's just one of those. Yeah, crazy. It's things. it's well, and, and it's, it's one of those lessons. And the lesson is, when it comes to paying legal expenses, uh, proceed with caution. And and in fact, in our own defense of our own trademarks, sometimes. We would just, and, and our own design patents, we would just um, say not out loud, but we would just, instead of deciding to spend $100,000 on legal, we'd say, we'll meet you in the marketplace. 
Mm -hmm. You know, for example, we had a we had an employee leave once who who then replicated our humidification line, and you know that humidification isn't necessarily patentable. We ju we just said we'll meet you in the marketplace, and and we prevailed in that, um, and that is because the brand Zycar had already created generated meaning, mm -hmm. yeah. and and I like to say brand equals trust, and trust equals brand. So, in other words. People trusted our brand, and when a new um, competitor came along, they trust who they trust, right? And and trust is even more powerful than price. Sure, yeah. So yeah, it's tough to break them away. Yeah. We started. I started asking you about the Zycar name. Yeah. So you're talking about the brand. So well, how did that evolve? Very early on, uh, th this is at the time that we were really in the design and and product development phase. I was reading a book on cigars and saw the word uh, S I K A R as the word that the Spaniards used for the um, product that the Taino Indians were smoking. And when I say Spaniards, I mean Christopher Columbus and uh, the, the soldiers and sailors who sailed with him from the old world. They discovered the cigar, or cigar, as it was called, S-I-K-A-R, when they landed in Cuba and in Hispaniola, which is today called the Dominican Republic, mm -hmm. Haiti. Mm -hmm. And so the Taino Indian word was sicar, and that and the Spaniards spelled it S I K A R. I merely changed the S to an X because X's are more interesting, and by the way, look like two blades crossing. Right. Oh uh, yes, of course. And so you made up that word. Yeah, yeah. And turns out that made up words are the best trademarks. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I fell into that one. I you know I didn't know that at the time, but uh, <laughs> tell me the uh, story that I saw online. Uh, in your history, the Rudy Giuliani lunch. Well, sure, you bet. What was going on with that? Well, uh, Rudy Giuliani is a is a big cigar smoker and um, is well known in the trade. And and, and at that time, he, he didn't have any uh, political involvement. In fact, he was no longer the mayor of New York and, mm -hmm. and was not. Uh, and, and and this is long before the not what he's the, doing now. Yeah, so, yeah. The, his his current sure. employment. And so he he would give public speeches and and wherever he might land in a city. He um, would stop at a cigar shop to, to have a cigar and just hang out. So I'm in my office one day, and uh, some uh, w one of my associates walks in the, my office and said, "Hey, there's a there's a guy at the front door and says he's um, security detail for Rudy Giuliani." And and I said, "Wait, what? Really?" And so I, I said, "Yeah, show him in." So here here comes this Secret Service guy, okay, who who or former Secret Service. Mm -hmm. And um, says, yes, I represent Mr. Giuliani, who um, has just landed in town. He's having lunch, would like to know if he could come by and smoke a cigar with you guys. Well, Mr. Giuliani knew about our product, owned some of our product, and when he got to Kansas City, he looked it up, you know, cigar places, saw Zycar, and uh, sent his guy over. So along comes Rudy Giuliani a little while later. And this and is at your factory? Uh, yeah, at our offices here in town. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that tur it turns out that was the first of two times that uh, he stopped at our offices, the second of which you saw us all out at a restaurant. It was actually dinner. Wow. So, and, and that was a lot cool. of fun. Cool. Yeah, it was, it, it was a lot of fun. You did some, uh, also, a shark tank with school, middle schoolers? Oh, recently, yes. Oh, that's, that's a ton of fun. I don't know if you two know, but uh, Scott and I sold Zycar last year, a year ago in January. And um, so what I'm doing today is trying to help uh, entrepreneurs, or in this case, that was with Junior Achievement, okay. which is one of my favorite activities. I mean, going into high schools, or in this case, it was a grade school, and we, we were um, judging, uh, that was uh, Haley Walsh, who's got um, uh, Casey Jim. And then um, uh, Chris Good, who's got Ruby Jeans here in town, uh, over at 29th and Truth. And by the way, if you haven't been to Ruby Jeans, get on over there and ha have one of their smoothies. It's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> so we, we, we all met there on behalf of Junior Achievement and judged a pitch competition done by seventh graders. Wow. And these kids, uh, uh, so smart. And, um, you know, if taught the uh, design method, in other words, uh, work, w define the problem, define it again, define it again, and, and get to the essence of the problem of whatever it is that your consumer wants, then your product should re should reveal itself. And these kids are so smart, that's exactly what they did, and, and um, we, we handed out some Monopoly dollars at the end. And cool. Yeah. That is so cool, Monopoly because dollars. I was 
busy being, uh, they were trying to indoctrinate me with communism in seventh grade. So. <laughs> well. I'm sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I am, I'm very happy to hear that this is going on. I, 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 can't, I can't speak for other cities, but I can tell you that entrepreneurship is alive and well in, in Kansas City. In, in fact, when I started out, Kaufman had just started, oh, yeah. and so I took their fast track. And then um, Hellsberg Entrepreneurial Mentoring Program began uh, shortly thereafter, and I, and I went through that as well. But that was it. And today, the resources in this city between uh, Casey Startup Foundation or um, Kansas City SourceLink and, and the city itself I think is that's incredible. Great. It's, that, it's, that really encourages yeah, me because, yeah. uh, you know, we've got to preserve that, that uh, appreciation of risk because risk is something that they when I say they academia had had spent so much effort minimizing and it risk is to be avoided and uh, I mean this was a uh, the mindset and I love to see that appreciation of risk because creative destruction is a very valuable thing and and it's not destructive it's the way entrepreneurs develop. Yeah, I love the conversation about risk. In fact, I got asked in a radio interview, um, oh, this would be 15 years ago, uh, um, I, I got asked about risk and, and the interviewer said, you know, you entrepreneurs, you're, you're, you're great risk takers. And I said, well, the truth is, I, I think we are really good at assessing risk. Yeah. And, and by the time I get through thinking through uh, a risk, it no longer feels risky anymore. And, and that's when I'm willing to stake some money or my time, or, or in, in the case of Zycar, um, my, my everything, my that's livelihood, my house, and, and, and in fact. Well uh, said. Yeah, so uh, we, entrepreneurs mm-hmm. are really good at, at uh, assessing and then minimizing risk through mm-hmm. the, uh, again, the, the, the filter of define, 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 define the problem. Work, work 95% on the problem and 5% on the solution. So You've got to meet that, meet it head on and it actually becomes the thing that gives you confidence is yeah. the fact that you know that you have successfully mitigated those risks yeah. that you foresaw. Well, that's right. And I don't think that entrepreneurs must give up everything to uh, be successful entrepreneurs. And in, in fact, the more you have to give up, the more you should question the viability of, of the endeavor. I think that entrepreneurs have to be ready that, to give it up, though. They got to be fully committed to what they're doing with uh, a persistence and a tenacity that is best delivered on a plate of, of gosh, I'm risking it all, or I feel like I'm risking it all, and, and therefore, you know, I'm not going to let this And fail. it sounds like you were risking it all because you were kind of backed into a corner, you had delays on the product delivery, you had to take a job, you had already invested everything you had, but I have a feeling had that still taken longer, you would have reached deeper somewhere (laughs) and somehow would have kept that alive and pulled it out. This is is an open secret, but that, that actually happened. So uh, when that production came in in 98 and I sold all that product, the first trade show, um, I went home and said to my wife, uh, you know, I, I'm going to quit my job again. This, is, this, is, this thing is going. And she smartly said, well, uh, what are we going to do with this house, this big house out in there you go. that we had just built? So we uh, sold the house and <laughs> sold a car, gets better, and moved into her mother's basement in Atlanta. Wow. Two kids, an infant and a toddler, two dogs, and now one car. And then that, that was the summer of 98. In January of, ni- of 2000, we moved back to Kansas City because it really was going well then. And um, that same January, I cut myself my first paycheck. So um, it really took, you know, um, willingness to give it all up. And at the time, I didn't feel like I was giving it all up at all. And, and you know, kids are an infant and a toddler. What do mm-hmm. they care? Sure, yeah. As soon as you get up and, and get over that feeling that you want to throw up. Exactly, yes. you've just yeah. been hit, hit in the stomach. Then all of a sudden, you get over that initial part. And then that the, then it's okay, the rest yeah. of the day, the risk, it's fine. I need a light break here. I need yeah. a re-light break. Okay. Well, well, well 
here I go again, letting my cigar go cold in front of two established cigar-smoking experts. Do I fumble for the expensive lighter across the table and worry about burning my eyelashes with the perfect flame? Or do I dip my hand into the small Ziploc bag of talcum powder I've hidden in my sports coat pocket so it appears that I'm still blowing smoke? When will I achieve the proper cigar smoking style that I have witnessed in every cigar club in the city? Too much to worry about right now. I'll just take this gas station book of matches that I've secretly palmed in my hand this whole interview and light it again when they are looking away. And then I'll ask another intriguing question, like... What did you learn from that moment when you had to take all those cutters back at that, uh, that dinner that night? Yeah, well, Dick, that was the great lesson. I took them back because I was concerned about my friends' experience. They're my friends. And um, so I was happy to repair them or replace them and did so. Everybody was happy and I was paying attention. I had to pay attention and uh, decided, gosh, that worked out well. What if I gave that guarantee to everybody? I mean, why, why would I consider somebody who's willing to commit their money to my product anything less than in any of my other friends? So at that moment, we decided, you know what? We're gonna be as concerned for our consumer as we are for any of our other friends. And we said, we're gonna guarantee this product for life uh, with a repair or replacement uh, guarantee policy Mm -hmm. unconditionally. And in fact, uh, that became part of the culture of the company. And I can tell you that that is what created the brand. Well, that's such a quick way to overcome any kind of suspicion they might have about the quality of the product. They don't know you, you're a new company, you've got a new product, uh, they're kind of taking a fire on you, maybe it's 30, 40 bucks, but still, with that unconditional guarantee, you immediately get a comfort level with the buyer, you have a contract there. That's that, right. That goes well beyond that. That's cutter. right. Well, and in fact, it gets to the, the phrase that I used earlier, brand equals trust, trust equals brand. Yeah. So it wasn't just by giving the guarantee that we created trust and created our brand, it was by living up to it. Mm-hmm. So not only were, did we want to be concerned with our customer's experience, we wanted to be quick about it and we needed to be consistent about it. And knowing that that huge network of cigar shops, that word would get around Really fast. Really fast because <laughs> because all of the cigar shop owners, you know, the cigar shop owners like each other or not. They know each other. Mm-hmm. And the consumers shop multiple shops That's and right. go in and sit down and they talk, hey, have you seen this? And in fact, I knew we had created a brand in about 2004. I'm traveling with my reps in the marketplace. People stopped commenting to me about how cool our product is. They started commenting about how awesome our guarantee was. Yeah. You know, hey, I had this problem. I sent it to you and I got I got it replaced or repaired. Cool. Yeah. 10 days later. Mm-hmm. Couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. So, um, yeah, in fact, our competitors tried to mimic uh, many times. Well, first they said the lifetime guarantee was going to make us go broke. Mm-hmm. Then they began later years, they, they began to mimic the guarantee and they couldn't because you can't mimic a guarantee unless you live the guarantee. You can't say, trust me, unless you're trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So if you say you have a guarantee, and yet you charge for shipping back and forth, or yet it takes uh, three to six weeks to get it back, or if you kibitz with your customer, your consumer, about what is guaranteed and what is not guaranteed, then it's not really a guarantee, is it? It's more work than it's worth, too. That's right. I mean, we are know that. People can connect the dots and go on. I don't want to pay $12 shipping and handling and take 10 weeks. For a $60 product, Mm -hmm. right? Sure, yeah. And one of the fringe benefits, and again, this is work, we learned it along the way, is that we got product back. In in fact, our our average return rate on cutters, for example, over the years became about 2.5%. So very low. But, you know, in the initial years, we had much higher than that. And you get them back, what do you do? You figure out what the heck you learn is from wrong, it. Yeah, and you learn sure. from it, mm-hmm. and that becomes, you know, what a popular business school phrase in the in the '80s and '90s when I was in school is um, continuous improvement. Well, mm-hmm. we learned it because we had to. 
And so we would continuously improve our product as we studied the faults of the product and yeah, then had to sure. make it better. So walk us through the timeline then. We, we talked about the initial concept and then the early struggles of getting it off the ground and, and having to essentially mortgage everything you own to, to uh, bridge that time period. And that was when? That was the That was, that was 98 to, to 2000. And then you started building the organization. Yeah, in 2000, moved back to Kansas City and, and just began uh, you know, a, a more normal organization. Made a couple of hires, uh, including Scott came on board full time. About that same time frame, we decided to get into the pocket knife business. And so Scott designed a bunch of pocket knives because cutters are, mm -hmm. are a knife of, of a sort too. And um, so we started going to knife shows and, and this and that, ordered a bunch of production of Scott's designs, beautiful knives. Yep. Then 9-11-2001 uh, hit and um, pocket knives became illegal to carry on airplanes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the gentleman's pocket knife business thereupon died. So we were in the knife business for a very short period and out almost overnight. Wow. wow. The good news is because of that guarantee, one of the major dis uh, uh, retailer distributors in the trade out in Las Vegas said to us, hey, you guys, we love your guarantee. We love your design. We love your product. If you guys give that guarantee to a lighter, if you guys invent a lighter and give it that guarantee, we will not only buy your lighters, we will only buy your lighters. Mm, okay. And this customer was big and important enough to pay attention to whatever they said. So we set out to do that in, in the way that we had to, which was we sourced one lighter. And, then, and for a year, we tested that lighter with, with that customer and a couple of others, and it worked. And so we sourced another, and, and by source, I mean we didn't design it. So for the first two years, we, we sourced lighters, and then we got into the lighter design business mm -hmm. and, um, and eventually became you know, world experts, worldwide experts in, in the design geometry of a lighter, how the components fit inside, and the different types of lighters and the different flame types. Is cetera. there any kind of secret you can reveal to us about your lighters that, uh, you know, that make them the quality item that they are? Yes, I, there, there's a big secret about them and that's the quality of the butane. So mm -hmm. a lighter, and, and there is a Zycar butane on the, on the market, okay, which is sure. the best butane out there. It's like jet fuel uh, in a car. Mm, okay. All right, I didn't see that one coming. Wow, yeah. yeah. I figured butane was butane. <clears throat> no, Butane's that little yellow thing you have with the little tube on the end, you squirt into something, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. no, not, not at all. So. A butane lighter is just like an automobile, except in the case of the lighter, it's the, the fuel is under pressure. So the lighter has moving parts, it's got an engine, the engine burns the fuel, and, and therefore uh, the, the fuel needs to be clean and hot. By, by hot, I mean high ignition rate, and um, it, it needs to be effective, and it needs to light every single time. And, and we discovered over time that it is the fuel quality that really makes a lighter perform well. Now, the wow. other secret, which is not a big secret to those who make lighters, is that just like a car, a butane lighter's got fuel under pressure and it's got a spark plug. And that spark arcs between the lead wire and the burner itself as the fuel comes out. And um, back in the day before fuel injection, we, in high school we all learned, because we had a timing belt and, and we had points, that the timing of the spark to the fuel mixture ratio really matters. So the spark has to ignite exactly in time for the fuel to come out and have mixed with air because fuel just by itself, it'll blow that spark out. Mm -hmm. So we learned in the geometry of the lighter how to make sure that the timing of the spark was exact to spark that uh, fuel every time. Wow. And, and you know, we learned that because Lighters would spark occasionally. We'd, we'd get them and we'd test them and they would spark, but they wouldn't light. We'd click and click and click and they wouldn't light until we stuck them to another flame and it would light immediately. So it wasn't a spark problem. It wasn't a fuel problem. Well, what's the problem? Timing. So now you sold the company at the time that you sold it, which was, was that last year? It was, yeah, January of 18. January of 18. What was the what did the product mix look like at that time? Because the lighters became very, very successful. They did, yeah. The cutters remained successful. 
you're out of the knife business, what, what is the ratio of sales then between lighters and cutters? Mm -hmm. And did, that, did all of that go with the com under the same company? Yeah, well, in 2007, we were, we were supplying, we were also supplying uh, humidification fluids and devices to the trade. And we had a USA supplier of that who we really liked. And uh, in 2006, he came to us and said, hey, I want to sell my company to you. And we said, no thanks, we, we want you to be our supplier. And by the way, we're not jealous of your profit. We, we love your service. Because he was supplying just in time and it was really a great cash flow business. And so the next year he said, really, I want to sell my supplier and here's your new, uh, your new vendor unless you guys buy it from us. And at that point we said, okay, if he really is getting out of this thing. Mm -hmm. And he said, the price is the same as it was last year. So we ended up buying that from him and tried to market his brand as well as ours, but our brand just took it over. So um, by 18, when we sold the business, we uh, were in the cutter, lighter, um, humidification and uh, travel cigar case business. Okay. And the cutter lighter uh, segments were about the same. In, in other words, if you took the total to business and divided it by four, cutters and lighters um, were, th were the majority and then humidification containers were, you know, kind of split the, the remainder. So gadgets was our first, uh, always our real revenue generator and then... There was a little foray into the cigar? We did. Yes, we, we were in because a little. I, there was a lot of foray in the I, cigar. I liked them. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I really did. I smoked them and liked them. So th th this is one of the great lessons of entrepreneurship and the lesson of hubris. You know, um, the belief or uh, hubris, I, I guess, is an undue arrogance. Mm -hmm. and, and our belief was that, hey, we're in the business. Yeah. We have the same consumers. We have the same retailers. We have the same sales reps. Why wouldn't we add a cigar? And, and in fact, at, at that point when we got into cigars, we had a, based on our lifetime warranty, we collected uh, warranty registrations. We had 100,000 names on our database. And Sounds we, like a real good it, start. Well, why wouldn't it be a winner? And in fact, it was. We, we created three blends with a, with a great blender out of the Dominican Republic and, and also he sourced blends out of Honduras and Nicaragua. So had this great cigar that you liked. I loved it. We got it distributed in 500 stores out of the 1,250. So that's, that's a major win. Yes, it was a big splash. And every single year sales declined. So what was it, you know? And uh, the retailers told us they liked it and they said, yeah, but consumers just aren't buying it twice. And there was three different opportunities for them to buy, mild, medium, and, and mm -hmm. strong. Well, I then learned that you can't ignore um, the marketing aspect oh, of it, yeah. particularly when the trade is full of great competition. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that people would ask me, retailers and sometimes even consumers is, hey, you guys are Zycar, what are you doing in the cigar business? And you know, I would say, well, you know, we, we, we know the best suppliers, why wouldn't we be in the business? But the brand, which was HC Series, mm -hmm. it didn't have a history or a mystery is what I like to say. And so in order to be a great cigar brand, that makes sense. There has to be a story behind that. And the story, by the way, uh, has to be authentic. And it was too expensive to get Rush Limbaugh to talk about it probably. Well, <laughs> well wow. uh, we, we, we did get a lot of good free press along the way, including perhaps from uh, Rush Limbaugh, mm -hmm. but um, you know, some, some famous people carried our product. Uh, I, I know that Arnold Schwarzenegger gave him one, uh, or Arnold Schwarzenegger carried one. I gave him one, and my partner gave him one. Okay. Um, well, and the packaging, the branding, everything, it, it was very nice, and it was a great product. So, and that, I guess it, you, you sold it. The brand lives on, does it not? Oh yeah, in fact, we sold uh, the company 100% stock sale, and, and the reason we did so is, um, we couldn't figure out, we were in every single store, premium cigar store worldwide. The majority of those stores, we had the dominant market share, meaning shelf space, uh, dollar sales. And of course, that same store might have had an ultra premium brand and, and probably some inexpensive brands. And some of them would have some of our competitors, but we were in all the stores and, and we had no new stores to go sell to. Mm -hmm. And the cigar, the cigar business wasn't growing. And uh, so we decided, well, to grow the business, and businesses have to grow because costs always grow. Mm -hmm. We decided that, or, or we figured out that we'd have to invest a lot of money in a new marketplace, probably with new products, to, to continue to grow. 
And um, so you're in your mid fifties. Exactly. This this has been a, a great ride and a lot of big struggle and a lot of success, and probably just putting it all together and saying, you know, risk reward. This this is a daunting thing now to go to the next level. That's and, exactly right. Another big risk, and and by the way, the reward doesn't come normally year one. You know, some of the high flying companies uh, that, that that we look at and. You, you can look at, for example, uh, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. People, people think, gosh, that's an overnight success. Well, it wasn't. If you study their history, it took years. And um, at 55, I, I just thought, gosh, it, it, it feels like time to leave the party when the party's really going well. That's right. You were wise by that point, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I'd, learned, I'd made enough mistakes to not make another. <laughs> and so now, with all the lessons and... and uh, Having learned from successes and mistakes and, er- and failures and everything else, you are uh, sharing your, uh, your expertise with others and, and uh, tell us about that. How- what you bet. Yeah, I hope to share my um, experiences with other entrepreneurs, be they startup or um, what we call second stage, mm-hmm. uh, which is a business that has already successfully started up and, and now is um, looking at a lot of growth and, and how do we do that. And, and I'm happy to help entrepreneurs from um, setting their uh, vision and strategy all the way to understanding how cash flows through their business and how to keep your eye on that to really know your business and, and know how to grow, when to grow, um, and how much growth that uh, the business can afford. And if they can't afford it organically, then um, how and where do they go look for and that is such an important thing, and it's something that few people have the kind of uh, grasp that you have on. Because I, I tell people that really any business is three things. It's whatever that core competency is, whatever it is that your products that you manufacture, and then you're, you're a communication company. And, and that means with all the constituents, the vendors, the customers, internally. So and you're also a bank and that's the one that confuses people right away but I say well cash flows through your company you need to understand the time management the time value of the money you have to understand how to deploy your capital and you don't want it to go through you like a goose hmm. and so it's really I, I love hearing you uh, describe that because it's such an important thing and and that was a, boy, that's a hard lesson. There's one no that question. I could speak to. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. Well, and I, I know, I know you can because you, you've been a, uh, what they today call a serial entrepreneur. You've had mm-hmm. many businesses, lawyer. And the the deceiving thing about accrued accounting, which is a, a type of accounting that um, manages both your um, investment in in major assets as well as your um, profit and loss statement is not clear to even people who have gone through MBA school. And, and, and I did, and it wasn't clear to me when I started Zycar. In fact, it got made clear to me in about 2010 when my bank at the time came and said, we need you to inject $300,000 into your balance sheet. Now, inject, in other words, we're doing a capital call for you, and, and the or else they didn't have to say is, we'll call your loan. And the reason that happened is the regulators, after the, the crash of 2008-9, came in and said, hey, this is a big credit on the bank's account, mm-hmm. and, and we don't like the fact that they go out of balance on their line of credit mm-hmm. for four months every year. And they ought to have paid that back. Well, we couldn't pay that cash back because we were growing so damn fast. And, mm-hmm. and all that cash that we should have had to pay it back uh, went to buy new product for the growth of the next year. So the deceiving part about that type of accounting is that your net income at the bottom line on your income statement is not the cash that goes to your bank. It's got to then go through the balance sheet and account for what did you buy in property, plant, and equipment? Mm-hmm. You know, what does your working capital look, look like? In other words, how much money is tied up in accounts receivable and in inventory? And then at the bottom of that statement, there lies your cash flow. And then the big trick is, can you do that on a forward-looking basis? And that's exactly it's dynamic. It's yes. And what you learn when you're getting your MBA and every other academic pursuit is not dynamic. Well, that's right. And 
so that's an esoteric thing the dynamics of that money and how that's and that's why I say it's, I mean, you're a bank. You, you know, um, <laughs> I've had the privilege of um, being a guest lecturer at, over at UMKC, both undergraduate and grad school classes. And one of the advantages I, that I have over the, the text that they're going through is that I'm a real life example going through real life examples. Yeah. And I can go through the, the financial statements and show them the path of trouble. Mm -hmm. And then, or show them the path of coming through and, and winning. That's the difficulty that needs to be overcome. Well, that's an important thing. And if you're out there being able to articulate that to people, yeah. well, that's a very valuable thing. It's got to feel good to be able to impart that wisdom it, to people. It, it, because it, that's a hard way learning deal there. Well, oh, it, my gosh. I, I can tell you it feels great. And that said... Those are the finer details, uh, you know, that, that really are, are for people who are about to launch a business or in the middle of a business and are trying to grow it. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, one of the first things I say, whether it's to a high school kid in junior achievement or to, um, you know, e-scholars, executive scholars who are in the middle of working their business and are in class is that um, what, I ask the question, what is the purpose of a business? And I get all sorts of great answers like, uh, profit or increase shareholder value, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the truth is, the purpose of a business is to deliver the consumer a product that they want or need. And the rest is mathematics. So if they get the purpose right via their vision and then their mission statement and their strategies, the mathematics should work out well for them. But uh, God bless you if you have a solution that's out there looking for a problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Because those solutions, like the time we, we got a pitch by a couple of uh, inventors from the University of Wisconsin, they came to our office and said, hey, have we got a deal for you? And then they showed us what they called the Monica cutter, a cutter that they had produced that looked just like ours, um, but the storyline behind it was, this is the Monica Lewinsky cutter. And we, we, we said, we said, bingo. We said, we said, what? Man, we've been waiting for a hot one like that. And, That's and, a great and, idea. And, and I said, Scott, you got the rest of this meeting? <laughs> oh, is that my phone? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I love that story. How does somebody get a hold of Kurt Van Keppel, uh, somebody with a, a, an interest in having you share some of your expertise. Uh, uh, do you work with individual entrepreneurs as well? I mean, do you, sure, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, well, I'm happy to have a conversation or an email exchange with uh, anybody and I'm happy to help as best I can. If, if, if it goes deeper than just a quick conversation, well, then we can, we can talk about that too. What's the best way to find you? Yeah, I think probably on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. uh, Kurt Van Keppel, um, or per, just email me, Van Keppel, V-A-N, K-E-P-P-E-L at gmail.com. Very and, good. And I'm happy to do what I can. That's great. You know, it works well. And, Loy, I think from our discussion today, you might get that vibrating egg thing off the ground you've been talking about. So, uh, Thanks, Dick. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think Kurt's, no, he can't help me with that. Okay. Right. <laughs> vibrating egg. Kurt, thanks for chatting with us. What a great deal. And thank you for listening on the radio through the years. Well, Dick, thank you very much. Uh, I was thrilled to meet you. I feel like um, uh, a big fan, and I, I sort of had that um, um, celebrity nervousness about meeting uh, Dick of Dick and Jay and oh, KY102. Right. Lloyd gets that every time we meet. I know that. So. That's right. No, well, thank you're, you. well, you're a local guy. I, we really didn't talk about that much, but uh, one of the things that, that we love is, is how many people uh, from Kansas City have have done such great things. Now you're from Fairway. I grew up in Fairway. Went to um, which is Mies where I High grew School. up. Yep. And you're you were a stag. Yep. And I know uh, uh, Amsberger's grandparents grew up next to me, and uh, or I grew up next to their house in Fairway. And you had Tim Webster. Is right. he a Kansas City guy? Uh, well, for the last twenty something years, he is. I know. Um, I've seen him around. He he, he grew up in in uh, Springfield. And, uh, Good. That's close yeah. enough. Yeah. Right. right yeah. Right. That's really? within the listening area of our podcast, isn't it? It, it? Just barely on the edges. Yes, that's good. <laughs> both both of them brilliant guys, and 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 let me say that um, the company wouldn't be the company it became without uh, either of them. Well, that's great, and congratulations on building and and selling that company successfully. It's a great story. Thank you for spending some time with us. Thank, thank you, Roy. It's really my pleasure. 
Kurt Van Keppel. Great talking to you, Kurt. Jump on that LinkedIn page and see if Kurt can help you with your business. Malloy and I will be back again soon with more interesting people to talk to. You might love it. You might hate it. It's my favorite freaking show. 